Awesome. We've been making our way uh, through the Psalms. Uh, we do that oftentimes in the summer. It's a great way uh, to begin just moving our way through the Psalms on a regular basis. So uh, hopefully within a, a certain amount of years, we will cover all 150 Psalms. Uh, but the book of Psalms is incredible. It covers just about every human emotion that we have. It shows how we can praise God and also how we can cry out to Him in pain. It also teaches us about the character of God. It teaches us also how we respond to Him in trials. And today we're going to see how God's people responded when they were threatened in war. What did they do when an opposing nation threatened their livelihood? So that's, that's going to be the basis of what our psalm is. Now it's important for us to consider this. Because the Bible basically divides the world into two kingdoms. We have God's kingdom and the world's kingdom. When we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, we're adopted into God's family. And what that also means is we become citizens of God's kingdom, knowing that one day when Christ returns, He brings about a new heavens and new earth, and we will dwell with Him on this new earth for all of eternity. But now, in, in the present time, because of God's grace and us being now adopted into His family and becoming citizens of His kingdom, um, we are no longer in the kingdom of the world, and so there is a war between these two kingdoms. And what we see is that the kingdom of the world wants to persecute and oppress the people of God. It wants nothing more than to destroy the kingdom of God. In fact, many of you know uh, we've become much more active in supporting missionaries and pastors in India. And regularly we've been bringing forth to you accounts as they share the gospel and the very fact that they're risking their lives and the persecution that they endure. In fact, you know just a couple of weeks ago we uh, shared with you how one of, the, one of the brothers that we support was removed from his village because of sharing the gospel. Throughout the world, Christians are persecuted and martyred on a regular basis. Now, here in America, we have seen many popular Christians walk away from the faith in the last couple of years. A lot of times, it's been attributed just to societal pressures that they have encountered and wrestling with, do I actually believe this, or is it easier to believe and align with the things of the world? We've also seen many churches compromise on doctrine in order to become more appealing to the world so they will they will remove things they will say no longer are these things god's word if they are at odds with a world view and so uh, we have seen that increase quite a bit we're also seeing the tension increase between christianity and the world in areas like like politics and public schools that is a divide that's continually growing more and more and so a question would be, so what do we do? How do we respond to this? How, how do we respond to this war that we are a part of, this warring of kingdoms in a sense? And so as we come to Psalm 20, we will see how we respond and the hope that we have. And so I'll invite you to go ahead and stand with me as we read Psalm chapter 20. What we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's Word, and we do this simply as a means of reminding us that this is God's Word. It comes with His full authority. It is inerrant and infallible, and it is given for the purpose of correcting and training us. And so, uh, Psalm chapter 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. 
May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Psalm. We thank you for the 150 Psalms that are in there and how they reveal so much about your character about your plans, about about how you care for us, about how you know us, about how you answer us when we pray. God, I pray that as we are in your word today, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding. May your spirit work in our hearts. May we see the joy that we have in being your people and crying out to you as our God, who knows us, who oversees us, who rules this world, who has the power to answer um, And to do all that we ask. Lord, bless this time now as we read your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. When we're in the book of Psalms, there are many different types. There are lament psalms, imprecatory psalms, and there are what we also call royal psalms. And that's that's what we're in here today. And and in your bulletin, your worship guide, I put a, a whole bunch of examples just of other psalms in this category. Now, a royal psalm is, is not necessarily defined by its structure, but it's defined by its content. These psalms refer to activities of the king, things like a coronation, a royal wedding, issues related to war, ruling in righteousness and justice, promises related to the Davidic covenant. And when we think about the royal psalms, it's important to know the Davidic covenant. Covenants, um, if, if you're kind of new to the Bible, it might be, um, you might not know this. If, you're, if you've read the Bible more, hopefully you've come across the word covenant, you understand covenants a little more. But covenants form kind of what we would call the backbone of the Bible. In other words, they're the very way that the Bible is structured. Um, a simple definition, and this is very, very simple, but it's, a, it's an enduring agreement that defines the relationship between two parties. So it's an enduring agreement that defines a relationship between two parties. And we see examples of covenants all throughout the Bible. We read about the covenant of Adam. We read about that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And ultimately, there's the new covenant that we all enjoy in Jesus Christ. Now, it's as we understand these covenants that we understand what God is doing throughout His Word and also the hope and the expectations of His people. And so we read about, like, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so what I want to do is just read a portion of that to help you understand that. So David is the king of Israel. He's the second king. Saul was the first one. He did not follow God. David comes, and he's called a man after God's own heart. And he wants to build God a temple. So far, God, had dwelt, God has dwelt in what we would call a tabernacle, basically um, a glorified tent. And David says, you know, I, I don't want, God's house should not be a tent, but it needs to be a building. And so he wants to build him a house, but God responds and says, 
No, that is not what you're going to do, but he's going to provide someone else who will do that. And so this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, and this is where we begin to read about the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled, so he's talk, God is talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. As your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So let me just summarize just a few things that are here. Number one, God promises to raise up an offspring from David. So there's going to be this son that comes from the line of David. This offspring will be a king who rules forever. And it is this offspring that will ultimately build God a house. So there's, there's a lot we could say here, but this psalm is not about the Davidic covenant, but the Davidic covenant informs the way we understand this psalm. Does that make sense? So this isn't a commentary on the Davidic covenant, but that's going to help us understand what's happening here, the hope and the expectations of God's people. Right now what we need to see is that God has promised his people that from the line of David, he will rise up a son and he will be a king and he will rule this kingdom and he will do so forever. So this is Israel's hope. Israel's hope is a great king that would come and arise from David. Now ultimately we know that this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate, uh, the son that comes from the line of David, who now sits at the right hand of God, on the throne of God, and rules over all of creation. So we know Jesus comes as the true fulfillment of this. But when we're reading these psalms, we first must understand how they're initially speaking to the historical situation that they're in. Initially, they're referring to the king at that present time. Now, very likely it's David, although there is some debate if it's him or if it comes a little bit later. Um, so we've divided up the psalm into a couple sections, and we'll begin with looking at a prayer for this king. Now, very likely, this psalm is written because of the threat of a warring kingdom. We see the psalm is all about the protection of the king. It's as if the king is going to go make war against another kingdom, or maybe the kingdom has come against him, so he's going to go meet him in battle. So the people are praying for the protection of the king. Also in verse 7, we read about chariots and horses, which were commonly used in war. So there's just war terminology, so that's what, we, uh, that's what it appears to be based upon. And in verses 1 through 5, we have seven petitions that all begin with the word may. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help. May he remember your offerings. May he grant you your heart's desires. May we shout for joy. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So the people of God are praying for the king that, he's, that they've been given as he goes into war. Um, and this is important because the king represents the people. So if the king is victorious, what does that mean for the people? The people are 
victorious. And if the king fails, what happens to the people? They, they fail. Uh, we understand this type of representation today. Um, today, if our president says that he is going to war with another country, what does that mean for the rest of America? We are going to war with another country. So there's that representation there. And so here in the Old Testament, we see the king represents the people of God. Now, rather than go through each of these petitions, which we could do, and that would be great benefit for that, um, I just want to show four underlying truths as we look at these. Number one, God hears. Just notice, in verses 1, 6, and 9, the word answer. It's used repeatedly. Israel wants God to answer their prayer. All throughout the Bible, we see God listens to his people. Moses prays, David prays, Elijah prays, Elisha prays. God's people are always praying, and we see that God hears. We pray because God hears our prayers. Our prayers are not in vain. They're not going up, and we hope someone is there. We hope they'll be answered. But what we see is that the prayers are lifted up because we have a God who does hear and he does answer. We also have a God who protects. Look in verses 5, 6, and 9. We have the word save. Israel knows that God not only hears, but that he's able to protect them. They want God to save the king. Now, important to understand here, they're actually calling for God to do what? To fulfill his promise to David to raise up an offspring um, that will rule the kingdom forever. So their idea is if the king is killed, all of Israel will be destroyed and God's promises will not come true. So they're praying in line with the Davidic covenant. God has promised that he will raise up a, a son. He has promised that this line will last forever. He has promised that he will rule this kingdom. So we're praying in line with that promise for this king to succeed in victory. We also see that God knows. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 we read, May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now, God's people are not bargaining with God at this moment. They're not saying, God, remember our king has checked all the boxes that you've given him, so now you need to save him. They're not saying, remember, our, our king, he's come and he's attended church weekly. He's read his Bible. He's, in fact, ahead of the Bible reading plan. He's doing really good. He's a part of the, you know, the men's Bible study group. Uh, they're not trying to list out his works as a means of meriting God's response. But rather, they're pointing out the faithfulness of their king. They're saying, our king follows you. He loves you. His lifestyle demonstrates faith in you. They're appealing to the fact that God knows his children. That God knows those who believe in him. That God rescues his children. So that is how they are praying here. And it's good for us just to pause and to remind ourselves that God knows us. Do you know that? Oftentimes, sometimes, are you ever confused about the way you feel or about the way you think about things? You know, God's never confused about you. He knows everything in your heart, your desires, your motives, everything there is about you. So when we're confused and we're not sure what to do and how to go forward, our Father in heaven, He knows us perfectly. He knows what is best for us. He knows what's in our heart. He always knows the underlying motive behind every action that we do and every thought that we have. And at times that can be disconcerting a little bit, right? 
Like, he knows everything, even sometimes when we think those certain things about those certain people. But isn't there great comfort in that, too? That he does know us. That he does love us. And in that knowing us, in that loving us, he has sent his son to die for us that we would have a relationship with him. And he is sanctifying us, meaning making us more and more like him through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. So God knows us. And lastly, we see God cares. Look at verse 4. Israel prays that God would grant the king's desires. And in verse 5, that he would do all that the king asks. Now this is similar to what we read in John chapter 15. There Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. As we follow God and grow in our faith, our desires become more and more like God's desires. So here Israel is affirming that their king, their faithful king, desires to lead in righteousness. And they're saying, God, fulfill his plans. God, fulfill his plans as he goes to war. Fulfill his plans that he would lead us in righteousness. You know, when we come into the Bible, like in Matthew chapter 7, uh, we have the Sermon of the Mount there. And Jesus says, our Father in heaven is a good Father. He loves to give us gifts. He even says, if we ask for um, a gift, it's not as if God is going to give us a snake in response. But he loves to answer us. He loves to, to provide for the things that we need. Why? Because he cares for us. Remember, when we read through the Psalms, even when we're reading a, a prayer to God, what we can do is, is, is from, that, from that prayer, look at what do they understand about God? What is the character of God that we learn in the psalm, which is what we do here? Many people today, they deny the existence of God. It's becoming more popular. Still, it's a very minority view in America. It's good to understand that it's still a very minority view, but it is increasing. Um, and in other parts of the world, there are religions like Hinduism that consist of millions of gods. Most of, the, most of them are angry. Like when Hindus pray, they have absolutely zero confidence that their God will answer them. In fact, um, Muslims also do not have confidence that their God will answer them, which is why they're, they're trying to earn favor with him. But in the Bible, we see that there is one God. He's all-powerful. He's personal. He hears our prayers, he answers them, and he cares for us. This is why when we come and we pray, or even when we gather in a time like this, we know that there is a God who dwells with us, who is in our presence. When we're home alone, there is a God who is with us, who hears us, who knows us, who sustains us. When we ask for those prayers in times of help, we're not alone. He knows who we are. We have great, great comfort in that. So what is Israel's response to war? The king is going off to war, and what, is, what do they do? They pray to God for the victory of their king. Their response is prayer. Now, I thought it was interesting. So I, I was studying this psalm, and, and often what I'll do is I'll pick up several commentaries too, uh, and, and I'll read through those and and see if, if I'm off or if I'm on or, or learn um, just different things from, from other theologians who have written. And so one of the commentaries asked, uh, can we apply this prayer to us as Americans? Which I just kind of brushed over and kind of just kept reading. But then I read another. Did lights just come on? Okay. It's like it just got brighter right now. Like this part's more important. All right? No, I don't know. Um, that was weird. You guys didn't do anything, I don't think, back there, did you? 
something happened. Um, creepy. Uh, so, so then I read another commentary, and another commentary said, can we apply this to Americans? I went, huh, that's weird, two commentaries in a row. Picked up a third commentary. Can we apply? So then all of a sudden I was like, all right, there's something here. I was not tracking on that in the very beginning. Um, but I figured if three other guys who are much smarter than I am all begin to wrestle with this, it made me begin to think about this. Can we? Is this a psalm that we can apply as Americans, as if we were to go to war? Is this something we could pray for our country? Um, can we pray that God would give our president the desires of his heart? Can we pray that God would remember the acts of our president and his faithfulness? If another nation wars against us, can we pray this song? And this isn't to say anything about Trump or any other president. Um, if we go to war, we will certainly want to pray, right? Like, let's just be clear. We will want to pray. We will probably want to pray for victory um, uh, and protection. But this psalm is written about God's people praying for God's kingdom and that God would, would uh, pr protect the offspring of David and give him victory and for his throne to be established forever. There is simply no country today in which this is true of. So there would be no way that we could then stand in front of America and say, look, we can have victory over this. Let's pray this psalm for victory. It's, it would not be applicable. We would be taking this psalm, ripping it out of its context, and making it apply to anything that we would want. But, let me say this. Um, as a church, can we pray for this psalm? As God's people, a part of His kingdom, who have a heavenly and righteous king, can we pray this psalm? Well, certainly we can. But we don't need to necessarily pray for our king as, as they are doing here because our king is the perfect king. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's the one who sits on his throne and rules in righteousness. He's the king who's already come, conquered at the grave, risen from the grave, where he conquered sin, death, and Satan. So we're not praying for him to have victory as if he is not already conquered. He has conquered. Jesus says, um, and we also do not need to pray for God to remember our sacrifices, as they do here in verse 3. May he remember your offerings and your burnt sacrifices. Now, we will want to pray and praise God for Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice, right? Because Jesus has come, and he has died on the cross, that we would be saved, that his spirit would dwell in us, that we would, by his grace, be made righteous, not by our works, but by his grace. And it's on the basis of his sacrifice that we have been saved, and thus we can pray, and thus know that he hears us as a father hears his child. And so as God's people, we can pray. A psalm like this, where we're now praying for the perseverance of God's people, especially as we think about uh, God's people um, in other countries where they're facing physical hostility and opposition, we can surely pray for their boldness, 
and surely pray for their steadfastness. We can pray that the king would give us strength and boldness. We can pray that King Jesus would give us faith as we endure really a continuing sexual revolution here in the United States. We can pray for our children to stand firm against the pressures in school. We can pray for a list of things as we think about God's people that we would stand firm as his people in a, in a world where we are constantly opposed by a warring kingdom. And we have assurance. That's what we come to next. There's this declaration of assurance. In verse 6, this is really a new section. And we see that because we notice that the, uh, we switch to a singular pronoun. Now it's, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Now very likely, verses 1 through 5 are kind of read by the congregation. Um, and possibly verses 6 through 8 was read by a Levite. So if we were together, and this was Old Testament, and if you were the congregation, you would have done verses 1 through 5. If I was a Levite, then I would stand before you and lead us in praise as we now do verses 6 through 8. Eight. Now, how does he know that God will protect his people and save the king? How does he know? Where does his assurance come from? There's many ways we could probably answer this, but one way is to go back to our understanding of the covenants. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abram. We read there in Genesis chapter 12, this is what we read. This is God speaking to Abram. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we have in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1 through 11, God creates all things. Adam and Eve are before him. They sin. Therefore, now all of humanity is sinful and separated from the presence of God. And so now God is going to work at creating a new people for himself. And so Abram comes, and God comes and makes a covenant with him, not because of anything that Abram has done, not because he is righteous. In fact, at this moment, Abram wor worships, um, worships other gods. But God comes, saves him, gives him this covenant, and says, through you, I will make a blessing. I will create a people. And what we do is we follow Genesis all the way through to the end of the book. We see from Genesis, all of a sudden, this nation of Israel comes about. And as we go into the book of Exodus, we see that now Israel dwells in Egypt where they're persecuted. But what does God do? In response to his covenant that he's made with Abraham, that he will, bring, that he will be a blessing to his people and he will give them land, he redeems them out of Egypt. He rescues them and brings them into the promised land where ultimately he's going to give them a king. A king who will rule, a king who will lead them in righteousness. And that's where the Davidic covenant comes into place. God will give his people a king who will rule forever. So Israel's assurance of the victory is through God's word. That's why they have hope. As they're going into war. In Numbers 23, 19, we read things like this. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God has made a covenant. I will create a people. I will give them a king. I will lead them forever in righteousness. That is the hope of God's people. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, we read, God's word shall accomplish all that he desires, and it shall always succeed. 
So how is it that God ultimately answers this prayer to save the king? Well, what we see in the Old Testament is that the kings continually lead God's people into sin. Like if you, a good reading plan is to go through like 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's amazing to read the kings who they will lead well and sometimes then they don't lead well. And then we also have this whole mix of, of wicked kings in there. And what we see is that the good kings, even in their goodness, they're not perfect and the people suffer. Eventually, all of Israel will, will be divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and both of them will be led into exile. But while in exile, they still have hope. They trust that one day the Messiah will come. One day God will send forth an anointed one, one from the line of David. And he will once again establish God's kingdom. And because God is faithful, how does he do this? He sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ. This is why when we come to the New Testament, this is what we read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see what's happening here? Right here, Matthew's connecting the covenants. He's saying, the one we've been looking for from Abraham, who will be a blessing to all people, the king who is to come from the line of David, this is Jesus. This is the one, the anointed one, the Messiah. So here is God's word is what sustains his people. Israel in the Old Testament, while they're living under the kings, their hope is that God will fulfill his promise, the Davidic covenant. While they go, when they go into exile because of disobedience, their hope is that God will still fulfill the Davidic covenant and one day provide that king from the line of David. It's the promises of God that gives Israel confidence in the midst of battle and in exile and in all situations. And it's God's promises today that still give us hope. Promises like what we see in Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God promises all who confess Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you will be saved. Promises like 1 Peter 5, 7, that we can cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Promises like what we see in Revelation 19, that one day Jesus will come back as the conquering king, will destroy the nations of this world who have rejected him, who have not worshipped him, and he will gather his people to worship him forever in a new heavens and new earth. And we could just go through promise after promise after promise throughout the Bible. But God has given us his word so that we would know his promises, and it's his promises that give us hope as we make our way through this world. I mean, how are, we, how are we the church to have hope in an increasingly hostile world? How do we have hope when we're called bigots for not affirming LGBTQ movements? How do we have hope when we have brothers and sisters who are being killed in other countries? It's not the art of positive thinking. It's not that we, we come together, like small groups is not about us coming together and saying, you know, how do we conjure up some good feelings at this moment? Let's just, let's just think good stuff and good stuff will happen. But no, our hope is in God's word, coming into his word, seeing the very promises that he's given us so that we would know who he is and the hope that we have. This means we ought to be students of God's word. We can't be casual readers. So I ask you, Liz, are you learning God's word? Are you in God's word on a regular basis? Not to read 
like to check the boxes, but to, but to know God, to know who He is. Our reading also must not be sporadic, but it ought to be regular. Are we communing with God on a regular basis, that we'd grow and become more like Him, that we'd know who He is, that we'd know the promises that He has? Like when we come through Psalms, we're learning all about who God is. Are you regularly learning about who God is and what He's done for you in Jesus? And it's good to study corporately like this. This is times when we come together and we sit under the Word of God. But it's also good to come in smaller groups where we study God's Word. That's often where we have men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies where we come together that we would understand the truths of God's Word together. And it's also good that we would study God's Word individually as well. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he says this in Matthew 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to encourage you. Does that describe you? Are you living on the words of God? Are they what feed your soul? Like If you were to do an inventory, do you feel like you, you're growing in your knowledge? From, from where you were, let's say, a year ago, to now, are you growing in understanding? Are you growing in wisdom? And are you growing in grace and compassion in the character of God? Do you know his promises? This is the word that God has given us as a means of grace to us. That we would have hope in this world. It's meant to feed our soul. So let me give you an example of why this is important. Today we've talked about um, a psalm that is about God saving the king, giving him victory. But someone might say, you know, at, at that present time, and possibly we could come up with a scenario now, where someone would say, but can God really do that? Can God really deliver? What if God wants to keep his word, but he just isn't powerful enough to do it? Like, is it possible for God to have really good intentions, but just not the ability to fulfill it? Have you ever thought that? I mean, I think if we're honest, we do, right? We might not verbalize it in eloquent ways, but oftentimes that's what breeds anxiety in our lives, isn't it? When we have anxiety, we're we're doubting something of God, whether it's His goodness or His grace or or His sovereignty or something along those lines, which is causing anxiety in our hearts. When we're angry with other people, often it's because something is not working the way we think things should be working, rather than submitting to the fact that God is the one who's in control. And so I think it's, it's often that we do doubt God's promises. I think that's part of the battle that we're in, in this time that we live in, as we're being made more like Jesus. God is growing us, often through trials, often through afflictions, often through pains, that we would know His promises more. That we would know that He loves us and perfects us through these trials. And so, uh, if we go to our next point, we're going to see that God's Word not only reveals His promises, but it also reveals His character, because we have a God that is like no other. In verses 7 to 8, we read, Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we, but we rise and stand upright. So we have two different worldviews. Some trust in physical things, in appearances, and, and, but we're going to trust in God. 
Those who trust in appearances are going to collapse and fall. We who trust in God will rise and stand upright. Now, back in the Old Testament, horses and chariots, uh, or horse-drawn chariots, they're like modern-day tanks. Um, When two armies would meet in the field, the one with the more chariots is the one who's going to win. That's just a matter of fact, basically, back then. The natural inclination of our sinful hearts is to trust in the physical things that we can see. And so if you're a part of the army with the more chariots, what happens? We're going to win. It looks good to our eyes. If we're in the army with less chariots, what do we do? This is not good. We don't have a chance. We're going to get slaughtered out there. Because what's happening is the way things appear is now going to dictate whether we have hope or fear. What we trust in fills us with hope or fear. So we need to know that. And and that can happen today as we look at our bank accounts. That can give us hope or it can give us fear. When we look at our bills and our credit card statements, when we receive a doctor's diagnosis, An acceptance or rejection letter to a job or to a school, the threat of war, political tensions, physical difficulties or disabilities, all of these will tempt us to fix our gaze on something other than God. Everything tempts us to fix our gaze on the present, on what we can see. So why in our text does the author say he doesn't put his trust in physical things. He says, okay, I see the way things appear, but that's not the way that I'm going to live. Because what the Bible does, it gives us new eyes. It helps us to see things as they truly are. And listen, when we talk about reading the Bible, like this is something that happens on a gradual process. The more we're in the Bible, the more, uh, the more we see things and understand things as God sees them. And so if you're sitting here and you're going, well, I don't know about this, seeing things with a different perspective. It's over time that God grows us. God usually doesn't grow us in an event. We often want the event, right? Like, let's just, let's just move this forward. You know, let's put the coins in, pull the thing. Let's just have what we want at this moment. But God makes us like him over time, over trials, because he's conforming us into his character. So in the Bible, we see that the greatest stronghold is not the one with the most chariots. It's not the one with the thickest walls. It's not the one who looks bigger and stronger, but it's our God. Throughout the word, we see God is our stronghold. This is why we read in the Psalms that God is our mighty fortress. He is our shield. He's the strong tower we can run to. Oftentimes, we gravitate towards our bank account towards the things that we can see, towards a diagnosis, towards um, our abilities. So often we gravitate towards what can I grab a hold of? What do I see? That's either what gives me confidence or that's what robs me of confidence. But what we have here in God's word is from cover to cover, we see a God who regularly thwarts the wisdom of man. I mean, in Genesis 14, we see that Abram, Remember Abram, he eventually becomes Abraham. His nephew Lot gets attacked, and he gets taken into, uh, uh, taken captive. And so Abraham, a shepherd, grabs 314 other guys. And he goes against, it's either three or four, I forget which one, three or four other armies. So not 
Not three or four other guys he's going against, but this army's got several thousand people. This army has several thousand people. Whatever size they are, there's either three or four armies. And he takes a bunch of his shepherd buddies, and he's going, well, we got to go get Lot. And they go, and guess what? They rescue him victoriously. When Israel crosses the Jordan River, they come to the mighty walls of Jericho. We know this. Our kids have sung it. You have probably sung the walls. You know, the walls come tumbling down. You guys want to do that? Me and my wife, you want to come lead us real quick? She's like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, God brings down the walls, not by military might, but by a marching band. Right? Now, what's the point? As Israel's going into the promised land, and God's teaching them, look, you need to depend upon me. It's not going to be by your might you conquer all these nations. How are you going to conquer these nations? By trusting God in me. Don't worry about their walls. Don't worry about the size that they are. When Israel is threatened by a massive Midianite army in the book of Judges, what does God do? He raises up a man. And it's not the biggest, strongest guy. It's a guy who's hiding named Gideon. And he takes 300 guys to go attack an army that's said to be more numerous than the sands on the sea. That's a lot. And what happens? He defeats them. Now, are all these stories to say, well, man, Abraham and the people that came from him were just amazing warriors. I mean, they just, they had a skill that just other nations didn't have. No, that would be ridiculous. The point is, God knows his people, and he protects them, and he loves them, and he cares for them, and he answers them. Throughout the Bible, we see that God is stronger than all other gods, than all other military forces, than all other kingdoms. Ultimately, we see God's strength in the fact that he sends his son Jesus, who comes, who dies on a cross, rises three days later, that he would conquer sin, death, and Satan. Now just think about that. The cross shows us that God turns the wisdom of the world upside down. Here is a guy who's being crucified, beaten, And it's through him the entire uh, kingdom of Satan is destroyed and defeated at that moment. It's not by Jesus coming on a white horse defeating the Romans and other uh, physical nations at that time. It's by him coming and dying on a cross. What looks foolish, what looks like it has no chance, is the very means in which God shows his wisdom and his power. God doesn't need you and I to be powerful. Do you know that? Like he's not going, man, if only they worked out more. If only they were stronger. If only they could run those seven minute miles. We could really use them. God wants us to trust in him. Because he is stronger. And he loves to rescue his people. He loves to be for his people. And so I just want to encourage you. Wherever you're at right now, the things that you're facing, whether that's at work, whether that's at home, whether it's financial, whether it's through a physical hardship, whether there's relational difficulty, trust in God. He's calling us through his word to trust in him, knowing that his king, that King Jesus, now sits on the throne. He's already, he's already uh, defeated the enemy. He calls us now to follow him, keeping our eyes fixated upon him. Not being worried about what is happening in the world in the sense of we don't need to put our hopes 
and our dreams and the things of this world. Because after all, what do we know uh, of the fate of this world? One day it's coming to an end. And first and second Peter talks about one day that God will roll this world up like a scroll. It'll be burned. It's, it's, he's going to make a new world. So whatever looks powerful here, remember when we're going through Revelation? And we get to Revelation like 17 and 18, and it's kind of confusing. But basically what we see is that uh, we see all the nations of the world. They're continuing to gather against God's people. And what we see is that they all fall before God. Nothing endures, nothing lasts, but God, his people, and his king. So he's directing our eyes to him. And as we do that, that's where we have hope. Because honestly, the relationships that we're in, they're not able to sustain your joy. Our bank accounts cannot sustain our joy. Possessions cannot sustain them. They will all... uh, fail at one point or another and even if they do provide momentary happiness which they can right i mean we're not against stuff but they never provide the true joy that's only possible in christ because christ has come that we would have this river that dwells up within us that would be like a fountain that would be a joy that that endures through all situations and all times So no matter what the political climate is like, no matter what the social climate is like, no matter what's happening with your bodies or or people that you know, we can pray and we can have hope because our hope is not in the things of this world and the appearances, but our hope is in Christ, that he is with us and that he answers us. So what I'm going to do is pray and I'm going to ask some of the